and welcome to the May 2015 Harvard Medical Labcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Harvard Medical School Office of Communications in Boston. I'm David Cameron. And I'm Stephanie Dugin. And in this episode, Stephanie tells us about a newly discovered shortcut in our brain that may help explain how antipsychotic drugs work. And that's something that is still somewhat of a medical mystery. And in today's conversation, David speaks with John Brownstein about how your Facebook page and your Twitter feed may provide insights into your health that you had no idea about. Now, Brownstein is a computational epidemiologist. David, what exactly is that? That's a good question. So Brownstein is a researcher at Boston Children's Hospital, and he is known for taking large digital data sets and for aggregating them and developing all sorts of algorithms that could then use these data sets to track diseases and outbreaks. They've done that domestically. They've done that overseas with the recent Ebola outbreak. Mm. And he has an online platform called HealthMap, which you know tracks these things. Mm-hmm. So all of this comes under this umbrella of computational epidemiology. It is a term I never heard before until I spoke with Brownstein. In fact, that was the first thing I asked him about. John, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, it wasn't until I started uh, reading, you know, more about you and doing some background work that I came across the term computational epidemiology. Uh, It's kind of a cool sounding phrase. Um, Could you just tell us a little bit about what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in some ways, it's it's a pretty vague term, but it's attempting to get at the idea that when we think about population health and epidemiology, we want to think about the collection and vast amount of data that's out there in the world. So whether it's more traditional sources like clinical data or survey information or larger data sets that come out of, out of social media or Mm -hmm. sources that are out of, you know, uh, big companies that are generating mass amounts of data about you. um, The idea is how do you take that large amount of data, process it, filter it, and then make it something that's valuable. So how did you, um, how did you become interested in using specifically uh, data sets from social media yeah, absolutely. in this work? Yeah, so actually my background is in infectious disease and was got very interested in the idea of doing modeling of, of emergence of infectious disease and looking at the impact of environmental drivers. In fact, mm-hmm. my background is actually in field work. Um, and I turned out to be a pretty bad field biologist. I got Lyme disease while collecting ticks in the field, <laughs> and I ultimately realized that I'm not a very good field biologist, okay, um, okay. and I wasn't a great bench scientist either. Good to so know I, your limits. <laughs> so I, I had to find other ways to do research. I came to Boston after my PhD and recognized there was incredible vast amounts of clinical data that was available, but then realized, of course, that that data, say, from health system in Boston is very restrained geographically. And if you're interested in looking at large populations, whether it's across the United States or globally, you're going to need to turn to some other data sets. And of course, ultimately, one hopes that there is access to major amounts of clinical data around the world. But from our perspective, there was incredible data just locked away in different websites that we could start to mine. So okay. information about infectious disease outbreaks, information about important events that were taking place that maybe weren't being reported by public health agencies, but came through channels like news and blogs and chat rooms and eventually social media. And and, and how do you, I mean, is it literally, like how do you get this data? You just create yeah. algorithms that yeah. 
spider the web for these search terms or things like that? Exactly. So it's it's a combination of different tools, but we recognize that there were some incredible websites like social networking sites for infectious disease experts like ProMed, where if you could process that free text information, that would be incredibly useful. But in some ways, it's also developing almost like a web crawler like Google mm. with a specific for, uh, focus on public health issues. So we had search terms. We've developed this massive taxonomy of disease terms and locations that enable us to find when any time someone mentions about a, a disease and a location, we can begin to take that website, extract the text from that website, and then process it and signal on that data. So that we do on an hourly basis through you know, hundreds of thousands of websites, um, which generates about two, 3,000 alerts per day in a system called healthmap.org. So what have been some of the more notable things that you've discovered and yeah. found? So there's been a lot of great examples in the, in the realm of infectious disease. So um, early on, uh, we showed that H1N1, uh, the earliest signs of H1N1 came from a local uh, news site in Veracruz, Mexico, a Spanish site, talking about a mysterious illness um, that was impacting 60% of its inhabitants. Um, and so we identified that that was the first mention of anything related to swine flu or H1N1 okay. in the population. So that was a great example of how what we call informal sources, sources not coming from uh, governmental sources, actually could provide this early signal. Hmm. We've had many examples ranging from cholera and Haiti and how Twitter was a useful data source to recently H7 and 9 in China using a website called Weibo, which is very similar to Twitter, and even more recently with Ebola. Yeah, so talk about the Ebola one yeah. a little bit. What, so what Ebola was, of course, challenging from a data perspective, both official and informal data. There just not, was not a lot of information from the ground. Uh, however, because there isn't a big infrastructure... It, Right. You know. Both public health infrastructure and also just access to digital tools. Although there was enough information coming through both governmental agencies and news and social media that in aggregate these these sources could provide a view that would be unique. And so we created a special effort around mining all information streams around Ebola to create a, essentially a timeline of, of how the cases were unfolding. And in fact, in this case, once again, the first public reports of what ha what was taking place in Guinea originally mm -hmm. uh, came out of a local French news station um, that was reporting on the events. That was before uh, WHO reporting. So we have some great examples of how the sort of social networks and informal sector actually drives a lot of the reporting eventually by government agencies. So it's it's early detection, but. But what we think about it is more situational awareness. How do you build a picture of what's unfolding on the ground um, through the combination of data streams? And that's, that's what's unique about what we do. It may not be that we provided the first insight to, you know, that existed, but we provided a unique capability that could be used by the, the consumer, um, could use by clinicians to get an understanding of what's happening um, and build risk assessments, for instance, when we integrate that data with transportation networks so we can provide risk assessments of where we might see uh, a movement of the pathogen. In some ways, it's an information management issue. It's not that someone couldn't go and look at all these sites, mm. but when we're talking about collections of thousands and thousands of sites, okay. we're, we're, bring, we're bringing that down into sort of one unique site, sort, sort of like Google. Google's not the generator of information, right. but is helping aggregate that information. So in a sense, what you're doing is you're not finding something that isn't already 
you know apparent, but it's just making sense, right? Of, and bubbling of the it, noise, really, and bubbling it up to the surface and taking unstructured data and structuring it and filtering out you know information that's not useful to the user. Okay, um, I'm interested in this uh, perspective piece for Nature Biotech that you uh, co-authored called the digital phenotype. So what exactly do we mean by the phrase digital phenotype? Right. So the digital phenotype is a way that we're uh, looking at how to define an individual beyond just their interaction with the clinical setting. So the idea that people's interactions on social media, their wearables, the ways in which they uh, live their lives with their digital tools generates digital breadcrumbs. And so the idea is how do we harness that information, begin to process, filter it, and derive insights from that data to, to actually improve clinical care. When it, a patient uh, interacts with the healthcare setting, they're doing it at, you know, one-off times. They're doing it in, you know, they see a, a physician, you know, once, maybe twice a year. We get these very limited snapshots of individuals, which means that, you know, to characterize a phenotype can be tr uh, very challenging. And when we think about precision medicine, a big effort right now is to think through how to deliver personalized care. Mm -hmm. But to do that based off some of the, the clinical data streams that we have can be challenging. Now, it's not impossible, and we get incredible data and lab information and, and characterizations of individuals, but with these one-off snapshots, we don't have a great baseline on, on individuals. And so that's the concept of sort of that extending okay. of the phenotype. Where else can we extend it? Well, of course, people in their day-to-day -day lives are interacting with technology. They're interacting with their mobile phones, they're mm -hmm. on social media, they're wearing their Fitbit device, they're getting on their connected scale. Those they're, are those uh, wrist things yeah, that so, uh, quantify yeah, everything you do. Okay. Fitbit yeah. or Jawbone, right. basically quantifying your activity in quantifying your sleep. So all of that data collectively can build a pretty rich um, characterization of an individual and, okay. and build on top of what we already know about that individual's phenotype. And okay. so what we're, what we're suggesting is that that data is in becoming increasingly important and ultimately should end up feeding back into clinical decision-making, our characterization of populations, feeding back into understanding population health in very new ways, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to health behaviors. People just don't have you know, a great log of what's happened to them on day-to-day. -day. So a physician has an interview with a patient. Individuals are not necessarily going to be great at recalling everything that's happened in the past. And so this way here, we have this really perspective log of, of individuals activities, whether it's physical or sleep or emotional, now we can start to tap into that information. And it's happening in very unique ways. So it's so essentially, you know, what your doctor learns from you in maybe one or two 15 minute visits right. a year is nothing compared to what he or she could learn from you if mm -hmm. they had access to your entire Facebook right. feed. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it so yeah, to me, it's it's both provocative and a little scary sounding yeah, at the same absolutely. time. I don't know if I want my doctor to right. be my Facebook friend. Yeah, or so like... <laughs> from Facebook, we can look at your Facebook profile and estimate your BMI for your 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 photo. We can look at you know you know your general sentiment. Are you depressed based on the the sentiment of your posts? Um, are you posting in the middle of the night? So maybe you're not sleeping. Um, are you, you know, generally engaged in physical activity? So there's lots of different, even just from just specifically Facebook, we can actually glean a lot about various um, health aspects of your life. So how 
I mean, obviously this raises issues of privacy, Absolutely. you know, for the first part. So like, h how would this be done? Our feeling is that this is going to have to be some form of opt-in okay. where in patients who hopefully recognize the value of some of this additional data opt into a process with their healthcare setting, with their clinician that enables their clinician to be able to see a process view, not necessarily the whole stream, but mm -hmm. a, a process okay. view that enables some signaling to occur. So, you so know, some platform that is able to then right. cull information from that and arrange it in a way that in a, range a physician it, could. Right, that a physician could have a quick snapshot of your life. This is not meant to for a physician to have to read every single uh, one of your, uh, you know, family uh, family discu discussions of your family <laughs> trips. This is really about okay, what in the composite view, you know, what are the various metrics that we can, you know, uh, capture about about you know, your day-to-day -day life okay, and in ways in which you just don't necessarily have the ability or the time to, to disclose. We're already learning some really interesting things about populations that you couldn't get through clinical uh, data stream. You know, when you interact with your physician, they say, how many times a week are you going to the gym? You right. sort of think, oh, uh, yeah, four or five, six times. But really, you know. I lie. Yeah. <laughs> we, we all, you know, we all overestimate. But the wristband doesn't lie. Right. The wristband doesn't lie. <laughs> and, you know, ultimately you want the, you know, the physician to have the best possible view. It's, once again, it's, it's, it's an, an emerging area of research. So right. it's not necessarily like it's been decided. I think it's, there's still just a lot of exciting work ahead. Oh, no doubt. It'll be interesting to see where yeah. this all goes. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you so much. And now for this month's abstract. Everybody loves shortcuts. And according to a recent study, our brains are no exception. Researchers in the lab of HMS neurobiologist Bernardo Sabatini have discovered a shortcut in the brain that no one knew existed. This pathway may help explain how certain neurological drugs work. Here's the traditional view of how our brains manage data. Sensory signals enter through the cortex in the front of the brain. The signals are processed in the basal ganglia. Then they get routed through the thalamus and back out to the cortex. Except, not always. Sabatini's team discovered that in certain cases, the brain takes a more fair trade approach and cuts out the middleman, the thalamus. They saw signals come from the cortex to the basal ganglia as usual. But then the basal ganglia talked right back. While this may seem like a mere tweak to some bureaucratic flowchart, the researchers suspect this shortcut may help explain a long-standing mystery about how antipsychotic drugs work. People who suffer from psychotic disorders such as schizophrenia have cognitive and executive function issues associated with the frontal cortex. They also have visible changes in the frontal cortex. But the drugs that help these patients affect the basal ganglia. This has been a puzzle. But if there is in fact a shortcut from the basal ganglia to the frontal cortex, a one synapse hop, the activity of these drugs starts to make more sense. Of course, as scientists always say, correlation isn't causation. So stay tuned. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications with help from our producer, Rick Grolo. To learn more about the research discussed in this episode, or to let us know what you think, visit hms.harvard.edu podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at HarvardMed, or like us on Facebook. Now we'd like to leave you with a thought by Hippocrates.
Wherever the art of medicine is loved, there is also a love of humanity.